For the last couple of years, I've been writing a book about the science of happiness, and today's podcast is taken from a conversation I had in April 2019 with Dr. Michael Greger. I hope you enjoy. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Greger. Dr. Greger is a physician, an internationally recognized speaker on a number of important public health issues, and a best-selling author of multiple titles, including the instant New York Times bestseller, How Not to Die. He's testified before Congress, he's appeared on shows such as The Colbert Report and Dr. Oz Show, and Oprah Winfrey invited him to be her key witness in the infamous Meet defamation trial. He is a council of directors, a member of True Health Initiative, which is a coalition of more than 360 world experts representing 35 countries who together offer clarity as to the principles behind healthy eating and healthy living. Michael, thanks so much for being here. So happy to be here. And I can see that you're on a walking treadmill. Of course. There's so much evidence that shows that exercise is correlated with improved mental health. What is the causal evidence like at present? Because I know that there's more stuff coming out, but what is the causal evidence between exercise and mental health at the moment? Yeah, you know, so that is an excellent question. So this is a perfect example of where you could imagine um, a correlational evidence not necessarily translating into causal evidence. So, for example, as you can imagine, you do a cross-sectional study, snapshot in time, and you just ask people, do you exercise or not? Um, or do you have symptoms of depression or not? And lo and behold, those people who exercise a lot report they have very low, on average, um, symptoms of depression. And you say, awesome, exercise helps depression. Well, not so fast, right? Maybe exercise leads to less de depression, or maybe depression leads to less exercise. You can imagine how if you're feeling crappy, you're not going to go out for a run, right? So maybe it's what's called reverse causation. Maybe it's the other way around. Um, and so what you need is this interventional study where you intervene um, and randomize people to different groups and see if you can actually help them. So that's what, um, what was done uh, at uh, Duke University. Um, they randomized uh, men and women over age 50 with major depression. So we're not talking about just like people who have a kind of, uh, you know, low mood or something, but people with major depression to one of two groups, an, an aerobic, aerobic exercise program. Um, for four months, um, and or um, you take an antidepressant drug. Um, uh, in this case, it was Zoloft, one of the SSRIs, kind of a Prozac-like drug. Um, and um, so before exercise, the way we measure depression, something called the Hamilton Depression Score. Um, uh, and so before exercise, um, people were up around 18, and basically anything over seven is considered depressed. So these are people who are pretty depressed. Within four months, um, the drug group came down to normal. Right, which is what antidepressants are supposed to do. They're supposed to help depression. But what happened to the exercise-only group? No drugs. They had this experience the same powerful effect. Um, and so the uh, researchers at Duke concluded, hey, exercise could be an alternative to the antidepressants, um, uh, given that um, they've shown it to be a feasible, effective treatment, of course, without any side effects. Um, but... Um, you know, critics of the study have pointed out that this was a group exercise program. Right? So what they did is they had people come in because, you know, you can't just if you say, OK, you exercise, you don't exercise. This group exercise. How do you know they actually do it? Right. And if nobody exercises, well, then you, you just waste a lot of money doing a study. OK, so they did a group exercise. You had to actually come in three times a week to do a group class. And right? then we can actually make sure you're doing exercise. 
Okay, but then, okay, that, that adds like a confounding factor. Maybe the only reason the exercise group got better is because they were actually forced to get out of bed, interact with people, you know. The connection of the group. The social stimulation. And maybe it had nothing to do with the actual exercise. So before you could definitively say, look, exercise works as good as these drugs. What you need to do, you need to do the same study, basically. But like a third group, you had a third group, they just do exercise alone but with no extra social interaction. And that's exactly what the same Duke University researchers did. They realized um, uh, they were not going to able to get definitive answers until they had that third group. And so they created what is, I believe to date, the largest trial of, uh, um, uh, of exercise for people with major depression. Um, and uh, this didn't, wasn't just older adults, um, but um, uh, younger um, uh, adults as, as well. So they added this home exercise group. There's the supervised exercise group, um, the um, drug group, and then the home exercise group. Um, and so what happened? They all worked just as well in forcing depression into remission. So we can say now with confidence that exercise is comparable to antidepressant medication in the treatment of patients with major depression. Um, and since, and if you, now that was the biggest study, but there have been a number of studies. You put all the studies together, um, and uh, researchers have indicated that indeed um, exercise does have a large effect on reducing depression symptoms, um, uh, calling it a very useful, powerful intervention. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's very rarely prescribed by doctors. Um, uh, you go to a psychiatrist, um, and they're not going to tell you to go buy running shoes. Um, but, um, you know, but they're also not going to get to kickbacks from the running shoe company like they may get from the pharmaceutical company. That answers my question. I was just about to ask that because it is, it is rarely prescribed. I know that it was, um, I mean, is it slowly catching up, but like, is that, I mean, big pharma obviously is that's, 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 that's a big one, but like, is that, is it, is that the major reason or do you feel like it's at least moving in the right direction? Are like, are doctors starting to prescribe it more and more? Aren't they called like green, green, green prescriptions or something like that? Yeah, no. So they, they, there is a lot of it's ignorance. I'm not, I don't want to paint doctors as just kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, being greedy with their hand out. I mean, they just, there's a lot of ignorance. They just simply don't know about the power of simple lifestyle ex uh, interventions like exercise to have these pharmacological-like effects. I mean, doctors will say, well, of course, exercise is good for you, but it, it's actually going to help with major depression? I mean, I think people are skeptical, but they're just not familiar with the evidence. And that's why I created NutritionFacts.org, because there's this wealth of data out there, this mountain of good evidence about the power of lifestyle, about the power of you know, food, exercise, smoking cessation, um, to affect health, even reverse chronic disease in some cases. Um, so doctors will indeed um, uh, incorporate it more into their practice. Thankfully, I mean, the best news, I think, on the block is the formation of this entire new uh, specialty within medicine called lifestyle medicine. There's always been preventive medicine, but lifestyle medicine uses the lifestyle approaches to actually not just prevent disease, but to treat and potentially reverse its progression as well. Um, and uh, so there's now an American College of Lifestyle Medicine. You can get, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, certified by the Board of Lifestyle Medicine. And uh, the uh, conference grows every year. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just amazing to see 
um, people uh, kind of reinventing their practices, practitioners, um, you know, reorienting their practices. Um, and because it's not just good for patients, it's good for doctors too. I mean, chronic disease, about 80% of what walks into a door of a primary care offices, uh, primary care uh, physician offices, is uh, these chronic disease, lifestyle diseases like uh, heart disease, obesity, high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Um, and these are very frustrating conditions to treat for both doctor and patient alike because all we have are you know, pills and procedures that don't treat the underlying cause um, and just kind of slow the rate at one's progression. So you can slow the rate at which your diabetic uh, patients uh, go blind and get on dialysis and have their lower limbs amputated, but you're not going to reverse the disease unless you treat the cause, um, uh, which is lifestyle. And so uh, all of a sudden, I mean, why did we go into medicine in the first place? Right. If doctors want to make a lot of money, look, they, they become stockbrokers or something. People go into medicine because they want to help people. They want to heal people. It's very frustrating to do that now. But with these powerful new tools um, like exercise, um, we can actually um, we can actually get people's health back. And that makes everybody feel better. You mentioned earlier the word side effects, and some of the side effects of antidepressants are sexual dysfunction. I think it affects around 70 to 80% of people, long-term weight gain, insomnia, nausea, diarrhea. But exercise, as you said, can achieve the same results as these antidepressants, but without the harmful side effects. I love that you said harmful, right? Exercise got lots of side effects, <laughs> but they're all good side effects, right? And so not only is the exercise helping your brain, if that was all that exercise was doing, you have major depression, look, that, 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 you know, that's enough. Mm. But the fact that it's also increasing your cardiovascular health, that's also improving your immunity, that's also doing all these other wonderful things to your body, that's the beauty of lifestyle medicine, is that um, you only got good side effects. I enjoyed. I was looking at on one of the videos on nutrition facts. Um, it was there was I think it was a, it was a study done in Japan that showed that exercise is so important that not walking an hour a day is considered a high risk behavior alongside smoking, excess drinking, and being obese. Yeah, no, no, and I think that's important too. So when you find that, uh, you know, for example, you know these amazing statistics about. Um, how much longer you can extend your lifespan by, you know, doing something as simple as walking every day, you know, you can really turn that around on its head and say, wait a second, not walking cuts years off your lifespan, right? I mean, that's, I mean, that's basically the equivalent thing, but just framing it differently, I think may be able to motivate um, people. And so, right, we're not talking, you know, that you have to go out and do an Ironman. We're talking simple walking. Uh, it's an exercise almost anybody can do. Um, uh, no matter your, uh, your fitness level, um, you can start slow, um, and, uh, you see these remarkable longevity benefits. In fact, most of the longevity data actually, um, uh, surrounds walking just because you have the large number of people doing it. Um, and so, yeah. And so, um, uh, it's, you know, it's, it, these are, it's really life or death decisions, whether or not you're going to get up, you're going to move every day. We were built to move, but, uh, any amount is better than nothing. There's, there's obviously so much conflicting advice as to what constitutes a healthy diet. And as we have alluded to, I mean, there's, there's many factors. I mean, you talked about how, um, like the tobacco industry back in, back in the day, confusion is good. So, I mean, for a lot of these industries and companies, they benefit and profit from this confusion. If, if, if people are confused, then great, because it's just like, okay, businesses just carry on because it's just too much. So just for fun, just as a thought exercise, let's imagine no one had an agenda 
why do you think do you think there still would like people would still not be able to agree because every every day there's a different you know whatever like paleo vegan atkins like there's always everyone's got a different opinion everyone's almost like religious about their opinions why is there so much confusion Okay, well, so you're right. So a lot of the, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of the confusion is manufactured. You know, the tobacco industry had this famous um, uh, internal uh, memo, which was leaked, um, called Doubt is Our Product, basically. And so this is the PR company um, that was working for the tobacco industry and said, look, we don't have to convince people smoking is good for you, but our product, what we're trying to create is just doubt. All we have to do is create doubt in the minds of smokers. Yeah, some people say it causes lung cancer, but other scientists says it doesn't cause lung cancer. So in hopes that people just throw their hands up in the air, continue to do what's easiest, whatever we, you know, eat whatever's put in front of them, continue to smoke their cigarettes, et cetera. Um, and so, and yeah, so confusion reigning supreme is exactly what these industries um, uh, that don't have our best interest at heart. Um, that's what they really thrive on. Um, but there is remarkable consistency in the medical literature going back decades as the core elements of healthy eating. I mean, that's, that's important to understand. And so, yes, if you look at the blogosphere, oh my God, everyone's got crazy opinions. Um, you look at like diet books coming out, but if you actually look at the science, I mean, the science has been remarkably consistent. Of course you can get, you know, the beef industry, you know, funding some study to, you know, uh, to to manipulate uh, uh, the, the results to get some of the crazy. But if you look um, at the data overall period, or even better, you just look at the studies that were independently funded, funded by NIH or something, by taxpayer dollars, um, very remarkably clear um, that, um, you know, we should, uh, you know, uh, increase our consumption of Whole plant foods, fruits, vegetables, uh, you know, whole grains, legumes, beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils, you know, nuts and seeds, herbs and spices, mushrooms, basically real food that grows out of the ground. These are our healthier choices, healthiest choices, while uh, decreasing our intake of uh, meat, eggs, dairy, and junk. You know, you see a, a graph that says, you know, 5,000 people feel better, and it just doesn't have the same impact as one person describing how they felt better. Um, but the problem is these kind of glorified anecdotes are just that and can be used um, by, you know, snake oil charlatans to sell all sorts of garbage. Um, you know, this one person got better. Here's, you know, before and after pictures, testimonials. I mean, that's, those are the classic. Uh, when the science is perfectly clear and the reason they don't talk about the science is because the science doesn't support their, you know, whatever kind of snake oil product. We need to just be hard nosed. Look at the data. Um, and if it wasn't such a life and death important decision, then yeah, you know, who cares? Believe people's opinions and beliefs and, you know, whatever kind of fad of the day, you know, uh, like, you know, what, what are you going to wear today? Well, whatever. I mean, you know, that's, you make, make whatever decision you want based on whatever flimsy, you know, you know, uh, fad that comes along. But when it comes to something as life and death important as what to feed yourself and your family, I mean, you know, the, the, here in the States, the American diet, number one killer of men and women. Um, uh, now bumping tobacco smoking to number two. Smoking only kills about half a million Americans every year, whereas our diet kills hundreds of thousands more. Number one cause. So it's like our most important health decision. Um, so if there's any decision in life to be made based on the evidence, it should be that one. And, of course, same thing with um, all the exercise data, although exercise data is less conflicted. Um, there's, uh, there's not an industry out there necessarily that's, you know, uh, you know, is going to profit from people being, um, sedentary. And in fact, the opposite, I mean, the, the, uh, the, you know, junk food industry, Coca-Cola famously got caught, 
um, uh, you know, secretly funding this group that just came out and was, you know, blaming the obesity epidemic on inactivity, saying, oh, yeah, it has nothing to do with the food. It's all inactivity. So there's actually economic interest supporting um, exercise out there. But still, people are not doing it enough. A phrase I've heard quite a few times is the, the talk but not sing test. So like when, when people say moderate exercise, it's like, what does that even mean? A talk but sit, not sing test is a phrase that's come up a few times. What, what does that mean? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> you can imagine um, uh, it's kind of how out of breath you are, basically. Um, and so, uh, and so uh, uh, you can define kind of various gradations of, uh, of exercise on whether or not doing that exercise um, you're able to carry on a conversation. Um, uh, and uh, you can imagine if you're doing vigorous exercise, you couldn't even, I mean, you can get a couple of words out, right? But I mean, you can't really carry on a conversation because you're so out of breath, right? That's vigorous. Okay. Um, but you can imagine another level of exercise, a more moderate level of exercise where, yeah, you can carry on a conversation. You like, you know, you're doing a, a good vigorous walk, you know, four miles an hour, you know, you really, um, uh, but look, you can still carry on a conversation. You're not so out of breath, but uh, not so, but you're, you're active enough that you really don't have the kind of lung capacity um, uh, uh, left, the reserve to, you know, start singing, really kind of belting it out. You really got to kind of stop if you want to do a little karaoke. Um, and so that's kind of been used as kind of a, uh, just a, you know, there's obviously scientific methods, you can actually measure it. Um, but uh, just as a way of kind of uh, for, for the kind of lay audience to explain the differences. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? Ah, oh, fulfilled life is, uh, is uh, reducing suffering in the world, is using your inborn talents to get out there and do something good for the planet. Um, and that's uh, reducing as much suffering as you can possibly do. That's what uh, gets me up in the morning. Nice. And if you had to give our audience something that they can go off and do today, what would that be? Ah, well, um, if uh, people are interested in my work, obviously, they can go to nutritionfacts.org and sign up for free. Everything's free on the website. There's no ads, no corporate sponsorships, strictly not commercial, not selling anything. Just put it up as a public service, as a labor of love. Um, and so, yeah, you can check out, uh, subscribe, new videos and articles every day on the latest in evidence-based nutrition. Too bad there isn't an exercisefacts.org website talking about all the new great science in exercise physiology. Hopefully, someday, someone will create one. Dr. Michael, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and speaking with me while having a good workout yourself when you're on your treadmill. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Good luck with the book. Happiness.info.